I will stay in touch with them for sure. I'm always looking for people who are kind of like generating story as they move through life. And I had a glimpse of maybe another story. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is the best-selling author, Michael Lewis. I hope you enjoy. Well, Michael Lewis, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's so great to see you again. Michael Lewis, of course, a best-selling author, one of the gifted storytellers of our time, uh, author of such books as Liar's Poker, uh, Moneyball, The Big Short, Flash Boys, The Undoing Project. His latest is Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. Uh, Michael Lewis, welcome. It's great to speak with you. Good to see you, Peter. Yeah, always is. Thank you. But first, a quick word from our partner, Cisco, and the company's vice president and chief product officer of its incubation engine, OutShift, Poppy Menon. Poppy wanted to share how he and his team are building solutions to help organizations secure their cloud infrastructures. Poppy, over to you. Within OutShift, we have a multi-cloud defense suite. Panoptica, the product that we are talking about, it's a full cloud-native application protection platform, and it works very well with other products in the Cisco security and observability portfolio, where insights from Panoptica are fed into those products and help inform your cloud-native security. One of the biggest advantages with the Panoptica product is this ability to visualize your attack path. For any enterprise operating at non-trivial scale, your cloud infrastructure will have thousands, if not tens of thousands of vulnerabilities. This is just going to be the way things are, but that's not actionable. When you have 10,000 vulnerabilities, you don't know what to do about them. What Panoptica allows you to do is to take that and distill it down and say, of the thousands of vulnerabilities that you have out there, which of them should you pay attention to because they form part of a credible attack path that can compromise one of your critical assets? It makes it actionable and we call it prioritize with precision. So it really helps you prioritize the things that matter based on the credible threat that they pose. And now on to the interview. Well, I, Michael, I wanted to, uh, first of all, congratulations on your latest book, which if I read correctly, is actually the fastest selling book of all of yours, at least for this, uh, at the stage of the, the game. It seems like it's uh, being gobbled up with alacrity. Yes. And uh, already the rights even before publication were sold for uh, to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, in past conversations, you have talked about the role if, with me and with others that luck plays. Uh, in the books that you write. And I, I mean, <laughs> I, I picked a good one to talk about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. as I was reading the book, I couldn't believe how fortunate you yes, were to yeah. have found a subject and yeah. then to ensconce yourself with that subject at the point at which uh, it went from top of the mountain to the mountain crumbling. Right. Talk a little bit about your process of uh, coming to uh, Sam Bankman Free, or actually rather his coming to you to Berkeley. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it's totally, there, there's a huge amount of accident story. I'm mean, trying to give myself a little credit beyond just the luck here. I'm trying to say like, what did I do right? Because I'm not quite sure there's that much, but there's a little bit. I, I wasn't interested in crypto as a subject, really. I'd kind of waded into it a couple of times and it, 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 the technology didn't interest me that much. It's just a technology story. I had not, the characters I had encountered up to that point in crypto until I met, before I met Sam Bankman fried all felt like they were selling me something. And uh, they all wanted me to write about them. And that's, I never really, I don't respond very well to that. So like- So it's a market for them essentially. I, yeah, exactly. And what, what happened in his case was a friend of mine, main character Flash Boys, Brad Katsuyama, called me up and said he was in this fun, this was September of 2021. He was in this odd situation of about to do, be doing a business deal. I mean, it was middle of COVID, so this partly explains it. Uh, with a, a guy who, with Sam Bankman-Fried, who he'd only just come to know, 
felt he didn't really know him that well, felt that they were gonna exchange $300 million in shares in each other's company, and he couldn't find even like character references. That, and no wonder, no one knew who Sam Bankman fried was 18 months earlier, and he'd gone from that to being worth, maybe the richest person in the world under 30. Uh, and, but he was in Hong Kong. So Brad said, could you just meet with him and talk to him and just give me your view of what you think of him? Any red flags kind of thing. And so Sam Bankman fried I didn't know who he was, never heard of him. Um, the idea of him did interest me though, for this reason. When crypt, crypto started, when I, I started to kind of think maybe crypto had some use for me, um, when it exploded, when it, when, when it went from, I mean, at that point it was at a market cap of $2 trillion. And I was really interested in kind of the socially disruptive side of it, like having people came out of nowhere, like Sam Bankman-Fried, and all of a sudden they've got a pile of $20 billion and they're doing things with it and changing the world with it. So I was interested in him when I learned of his existence, when he rolled in. We, I spent two hours with him, gave maybe the single worst piece of investment advice I've ever given. I told my friend, you know, I said, what could go wrong? Go ahead and do your deal. Uh, but by then I was off his interest and onto mine because Sam, over two hours, and Sam had no particular interest in me like writing about him. It was like, he, he knew he was there because Brad wanted me to get to know him so I could talk to Brad. But after two hours, I thought, this person is having such an unusual experience. It's such, he's interesting, everything's coming out of his mouth is kind of interesting, and the world seems to have organized itself very fast around this new fortune. He was in the middle of, a, he had his fingerprints all over American politics. He was learning all these things about how to essentially manipulate the media. It was one thing after another, and I just thought, I, I said to him, I said, I just want to watch. So I didn't know what story I was going to tell. I just wanted to watch. And, and this is how the books usually start. I just kind of, kind of want to hang out. Let me come hang out for a few months. And I spent a year uh, going back and forth to the Bahamas, traveling with him, trying to figure out what the story was, and gathered material, but didn't actually have a book. So this is where the, the luck comes in. I've had this happen to me before where I've spent a year on something and it came to nothing. Like I just walked away from the project. And I was on the cusp of doing that, not because I had any great suspicions of Sam Bankman Freed. It wasn't that. It was just that as a story, it didn't go anywhere. It was, I had a beginning and a middle kind of thing, but I didn't have an end. And I was very aware I didn't have an end. And I was talking to my publisher about this, talking to friends about this, just kind of like grappling with, I have this character who is, has the dimensions of a great literary character, the complexity, the shading, all this. I have a lot of situations, scenes, that are gonna be fun to paint, but I got nowhere for the story to go. The day before the FTX collapse, the day before, so it starts unwinding on a kind of a Sunday. Can't remember the exact date. Call it like the 5th of November, around then. The Saturday, I was sitting with a friend who was a film director telling him I had this problem, I'd spent a year gathering this stuff and didn't know if I had a book. And he said to me, he said, you, don't, which, you have a book, he said, you just don't have a movie. You don't have a movie because you don't have an ending. You don't have, an act, you don't have a third act. He said, but you could trick, he said basically, you could trick the reader, that the stuff is so good that you could, you could contrive some phony ending and nobody will blame you. You can kind of dance your way out of that. And that was on my mind when I was thinking, maybe I can do that, maybe I'll find some tricky way to do this book, but my, I wasn't all in. And then it falls apart. So I, I, I stumbled into it, like, or it stumbled into me. I did not have a theory of the case. 
all I had was lots of observations and characters and color. And then this happens. I think I probably said this to you before, but with, with, this, with book material especially, you want to be in a situation where you're only constrained by your abilities. You, it isn't the material that's constraining you. Like with Flash Boys, I was constrained by the material. I had a main character who had nothing wrong with him. He was like a nice Canadian guy. That sucks as a character. It's just a problem. And I was aware there was a limit to what I could do with him. I loved him as a person, but as a character, he was like, I couldn't find dimensions to him that were, that to make him kind of leap in the way a literary character wants to leap off the page. With this material, it was like just a question of how good am I? Because it, the material was that good. And unconstrained by anything but my own abilities. I know it's a tragedy and I'm supposed to be miserable and all that, but I, but I had so much fun writing this book. It was just like a gas to write. Wow. Well, you, you mentioned uh, that he didn't really have any interest in you, that he was uh, hoping to get the next conversation with Brad Katsuyama. But why then did he allow you such access? Well, this listen, is the most remarkable thing that you had spent so much time. You were in the room as he's talking to business leaders, politicians. You're on flights with him. How, how did, why would he give you that access? So this is, a, I always ask that question. I mean, because I'm, from every subject, I'm asking that kind of, for that kind of access. So they have to have a reason why they give it to me. Uh, and typically what happens is I'm not asking for, you know, it's a first date. You don't ask, you, you don't even try to kiss him on the first date. You just take him out to dinner. And it, it, but it takes a little while before you get to the point where you're really embedded with them. And that happened with him like it happened with everybody else. But why the initial willingness to let me just come and loiter? One was he was a bit of a media whore already. Like it was just like he was talking to anybody who called him. And he was not making distinctions within the media much. There was no great strategy. It was like, we'll just talk to everybody and get as much attention as possible. So he was already predisposed to talk to people, but mostly people weren't asking for what I was asking for. In fact, no one was. They were all asking for, could I have an interview? Could I spend an hour? Could I, no one was saying, can I come to the Bahamas and spend two weeks? Uh, so that was, I think no one had asked. And he was reflexively saying yes to media. I think he probably, I, I think there's actually a couple of reasons though, why it progressed the way it progressed. The, the story he told himself and the story he told, I think his colleagues was, we are trying to become the respectable crypto exchange. We are the, the most, we're trying to be the most regulated, the most licensed. Given what happened, it's ironic, right? We're supposed to, we're gonna be the most legal. And, uh, and the big, the holy grail was to get licensed in the United States either by the SEC or the CFTC, or maybe both. And he thought and told his, I think he told his colleagues that this is, this is a person who writes books that those people read. And so it will, it will maybe smooth things over for, for us. But the book wasn't gonna come out for a year or two, so how useful that was gonna be, I don't know. I think the truth is, Sam Bankman-Fried, when he was 12 years old, read Moneyball. And for a brief moment, uh, felt like his way of thinking about the world was validated. He wanted to be a baseball GM for a year. That it, all of a sudden, it, it spoke to him. It was music to his ears. And I think he felt a, a little bit of a connection to me because of that. I think, he never, and he never said it. I, the only reason I know any of that is from his dad. Uh, he, never, he never mentioned he read it. He never mentioned anything about anything I'd ever written. He never asked me any questions about anything I ever did. He never attempted to make that kind of connection, 
but I think it was there. I think it was there. Very interesting. Another fascinating thing that you review is how there's very few people before he was 18 that could tell you anything about him, including like his brother. Is this um, not is this not odd? It's it's remarkable. If, if I came to you and I said, Peter, I'm going to write about you, you run the other way probably. But, <laughs> but if you didn't run the other way, and I said, give me a list of people who can just describe you before the age of 18, you'd have a list. I have a. I mean, exactly. I have a list. I can give you a list of 20 people mm -hmm. who actually knew me quite well in different ways. Mm -hmm. And, and naturally going through life, you accumulate this list. You have coaches, you have teachers, you have, you have classmates, you have friends of the family, you have relatives, right? You have that list. He thought about it and he said, all he said was Slim Pickens. And I said, could you give me a name? And he said, my parents. And, he, and then he gave me his brother. So, I, so the parents, of course, the parents, you know, they did have something to do with him and they were insightful about him but very uh, skittish about talking about his childhood. They were very uncomfortable about his childhood. Was it a recognition that he was so unusual or why were they skittish? Well, remember when I first started talking to them, he's the world's richest person under the age mm -hmm. of 30 and they're worried about how this is gonna be construed and they knew how weird it was. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't wanna get into the weirdness. Then you talk to the parents' friends and they said, there was a, there was a refrain from them, which I've never really heard of anybody describing a parent's attitude towards their own child. They said um, they had the sense that the parents were both afraid for and of him. That they had some sense that he didn't quite fit into the world and that they couldn't really steer him. That he was, he was a little unpredictable to them. And that, so that was interesting. But the point is like they get to pass the parents the third name he gives me is his brother. I call his brother and says, I, his brother says, I didn't know him. He said, he was, I was whatever, four years younger or whatever it was. He said, and he was a tenant in the house. He never spoke to me. Uh, it, so already, number three on the list is of no use. And I, you know, of course I did the typical thing. I went and found high school classmates and, and they all said the same thing. They said, we didn't know him. Um, there was though, when you started to dig, there were a couple of some social events in his childhood that end up being really important in understanding how he moves through the world socially. One was, he went to math camp when he was like a junior, after his junior year, or maybe after his sophomore year in high school. It's in the book, I can't remember the year. And he discovers the uh, love for puzzles and games and the kind of things that math kids, you know, Rubik's cubes, but more complicated. Uh, and he gets home and he starts to create puzzles for people to solve. Like essentially treasure hunts on the Stanford campus, but in order to proceed through the hunt, you have to solve a complicated math problem or a complicated word problem, or some, there's a, there's a series of intellectual challenges. It's like a Horcrux hunt. Uh, and he broadcasts it on the internet that he's doing these things. And it's like an APV for the nerds of the Bay Area and it's of every age. And so a hundred people will turn up and this kid, Sam Bagman-Fried orchestrates the thing. And that relationship to the world, he was, for the first time, I think he's really comfortable. I know, I've created a puzzle for you to solve. I'm watching you solve it and helping you solve it. And when I, when I found that, I thought, well, that partly explains how I feel about just him personally. Mm -hmm. He has created a puzzle out of himself. He wants you to try to figure out him. Uh, and he creates, he's comp creating complicated puzzles for prosecutors to solve now. And the other thing that happened in his childhood that was important and the source of one friendship, but it wasn't really a friendship. It was his partner in a game they played called Magic the Gathering, which is a, 
it's the closest thing in kids' games to Wall Street trading, I think. It's a it's a infinitely complicated game in which sometimes the actual best strategies, it's a card game, are all are unknowable. So it's not like chess, where you can figure out in theory the best, the best move. The guy who created the game created it so it was so complicated, the answers were unknowable. And uh, the guy who played the game with him uh, was a friend of his, uh, a child of one of his parents' friends. Uh, ends up being a, the closest person who has kind of eyes on him and can explain him. But this, this finding himself in puzzles and games was what happens in his childhood that's important. Yeah. Very interesting. I, another point I wanted to raise with you is effective altruism because his leap to what he became mm. would not have happened but for this guiding philosophy, if you will. Talk a bit about sure. what, what effective altruism is and, and why he was drawn to it. So two things happened to Sam Bankman-Fried when he was a junior at MIT that set him on his course in life. And we can come back to one, high-frequency trading yes. and Jane Street, yeah. which is incredibly important. And one of the reasons I was so attracted to this story was what he collided with I wanted to explain. Yeah. Um, but effective altruism is a movement that grows out of utilitarianism. And I mean, its origins are in 19th century England, probably well before that. But, but um, in its modern incarnation, 2008, 2009, 2010, a, a small group of philosophers, young philosophers at Oxford, um, put forth this idea. They're extending the work of an Austra Australian philosopher named Peter Singer. And Singer had been arguing for decades uh, that people needed to expand their circle of empathy. They had an obligation or a duty to people outside of their immediate circle. And they should value the life of the person they don't know uh, 5,000 miles away as much as they value the life of the person who's next door to them. And, um, and Singer's, the story Singer told that sort of like the, the, the little anecdote that gets Singer going in the beginning and that, the, that these Oxford philosophers run with is you're walking by uh, a pond and you see a child drowning in the pond. Um, you have expensive new shoes. You have lovely shoes like your shoes. And, and you know that going into the pond is gonna destroy these $200 shoes. Do you think twice about jumping into the pond to save this child? Of course you don't, even though you don't know the child. So he says, says Singer, well, why do we even pause before sending, instead of buying the shoes, sending the $200 to save a child in Africa, which $200 would do? Like, it's pretty good argument, you know? It's like, you know, why don't we? And the fact is, we don't. What Peter, Peter Singer was doing was divorcing the act of philanthropy and selflessness from actual natural human sympathy and connection and emotion. It was making an argument for, for, for philanthropy. And these Oxford philosophers, they actually kind of like say, okay, we're gonna walk this walk. That we, one of them make, writes an article saying, if I, I'm gonna give away half of my salary for the rest of my life, and this is gonna be the consequences. And he measures it. He says, look, you can actually measure the number of lives you can save with these dollars. In his case, he said he could save 80,000 children from blindness, but it was over the course of his career. But they get on this jag of actually measuring, you know, being kind of ruthless and rigorous and rational about philanthropic dollars. But coupled with the idea that it's a duty to generate these, to, to give this money away, even to people you don't know or in theory kind of really particularly care about. The version of this that collides with Sam Bankman-Fried's mind in 2012 is um, 
they've taken it, they've taken this argument a kind of a, an odd step further. They're proselytizing to young, rational, mathy, mathy kids in, at American universities. This idea, the idea of what they call earn to give. And it's like, you may, you may, we may all agree, everybody in this room, that we are put on this earth to help other people. Um, but when you're thinking about this path, how you help other people, uh, think twice about how, how, about how people normally think about this. Like you may be inclined as a scientifically minded mathy person to go to med school and become a doctor. And yeah, you might even go to Africa and save a whole bunch of lives. But if you have the ability to go work for Jane Street or Citadel or one of these high frequency trading firms, and they're gonna pay you a fortune to do it, you could pay for 50 doctors to go to Africa. Now, isn't it more effective? Uh, isn't the, doesn't, the math, doesn't the math persuade you that instead of actually doing the good work yourself, that you go and actually just maximize your earnings and then you give it away in an efficient way? And this is an idea that appeals not just to Sam, but his whole circle of friends. He, it, through this, he finds a tribe. And it, as it turns out, the kind of people who are attracted to this idea, which I think, in my view, kind of starts to jump the shark. It starts to spin out of into some other orbit, but the same people who are attracted to these ideas are the people who are being recruited by high-frequency trading firms. So Wall Street is, finds itself around this time surprisingly flooded with kids who are there to make money to give it away. What happens that I think actually biffs Sam Bankman-Fried in the direction he goes and makes his ambitions so grandiose is the Oxford philosophers start to argue when they're, you know, it's all about like the math, how are you going to maximize the number of lives you save with your time on earth? Um, they start to consider existential risks to humanity mm -hmm. and, you know, asteroid strikes and pandemics that wipe everybody out and AI that wipes everybody out and climate change or whatever it is. These risks do exist. It's hard to say there's, you can't, you can't say there's zero chance of these things happening. So once you say there's some chance of these things happening, anything you might do to reduce that is certainly gonna save more lives you can save just by sending money to Africa now. And that, that, so by the time Sam Bangman-Fried is on the road to riches, he's thinking I'm doing it to reduce existential risk to humanity. To the list of the obvious existential risks, he adds Donald Trump. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but otherwise he's like, think that's how he's thinking. When that's your, what is preoccupying you, um, all of a sudden, the sums of money that you find useful, I mean, it's sort of a limit to how much money you can spend usefully saving children in Africa. There's almost no limit to what you can spend trying to prevent pandemics in the future or AI from, you're getting, you get into government-sized numbers. And so that, that he and his cohort were thinking like that. Uh, when they when they start making money to give it away, mm. so I do want to linger briefly before we get to Alameda Research right. and FTX on Jane Street. Yes, and high frequency trading. Yes, uh, two chapters of the book are about ex this. Exactly, that's right. And and uh, you know you you worked in on Wall Street way back when. Uh, prior to these days, there's no way somebody like Sam Bankman-Fried would seem anyway would get a get a role at Solomon Brothers you know, it's or funny. Goldman Sachs. It's but funny. I thought it, it's it, this is interesting because um, if you look at go back and look at Liars Poker, it's the beginning of the intellectualization of the financial markets. Right? They mm -hmm. are pulling this this the proprietary trading group at Solomon Brothers is for the first time pulling PhDs out of MIT to come trade. Mm -hmm. 
but they still, they were so much more socially well-adjusted than Sam Bankman-Fried that they actually passed through social filters. And, it, and if they had had Sam's social makeup, they would never have been brought in. And that, that what happens is the social filters become decreasingly important that especially as trading gets automated, it's no longer people to person to person, it's, it's your bot versus my bot. Where Sam goes to work, the Jane Streets of the world, really place so little emphasis on social ability that someone like Sam could get in the door. Sam ends up testing even Jane Street's uh, social needs. Like he did, he, they, they start to become alarmed by how he actually is. But um, when they're looking for people, they're testing for something very different from what a Solomon Brothers job interview tested for. And they're testing for, and Sam ends up being very good at these tests, they're testing for an ability to think analytically in kind of semi-chaotic environments, like environments like Magic the Gathering, where there's no right answer, but there are better answers you can get to if you're, if you're imaginative and analytical at the same time. And he had that combination of imagination and, and analytical ability that just was catnip to them. Um, and it's, this is an incredibly important part of his story, but an important part of the story of Wall Street. From Sam's point of view, up to the moment, he is identified by not just Jane Street, but other, other high-frequency trading firms who want to hire him as unusually gifted or filled with potential. He, um, no one had identified him as really that special. That he had been, sure he'd been, he'd been like probably his, they didn't have a valedictorian, but he would have been his class valedictorian in this small high school in Palo Alto. But, but, and he was, so he's good at math, good at physics, he was good at playing chess, but he wasn't good compared to people who were really good at that. Uh, it, he was good compared to people who were really good at high frequency trading. And, and that was the first time he had a sense of himself, first time he had evidence that he was as special as he hoped he was. I think that's what happens at Jane Street. And it becomes extremely important to him and actually will, have, will play out the effects of that on his identity will play out later. From the Jane Street side, it's so, it was so interesting to me. I mean, these places don't let reporters in. I mean, you call them and they, their lawyer calls you back or their PR person calls you back, tries to get as much information out of you about what you're doing as, as they can and then and pretends they pretend they'll have you in and then you never hear from them again. And that's happened to reporter after reporter with them and I knew it was gonna happen to me. Because Sam hired so many people out of this place, he opened a window on the place that I was able to kind of get the story of what, the, what it was like in this place. And for me, it was riveting because it was like the, it was an evolution of financial man thing. And Sam himself said that you could look around the Jane Street trading floor, see a physical difference between the tra traders of his era, his generation, and the traders of the previous generation, the people who founded the firm. People who found the firm were physically larger because they had to be in pits. Their voices projected. They were more socially able, capable because they had had to be. They were. They tended to be good at like quick math, like arithmetic, mental arithmetic, but higher order analytical thinking. They were not. They didn't. They the doors were being blown off by these new kids coming in who had just intellectual powers that the the, the previous generation didn't have. And Samson said very telling. He said you could tell what was going on, on Wall Street when I arrived just by looking at the average IQ of people at, at Jane Street versus the average IQ of people at Morgan Stanley. The money they were making, and that was the other thing, is like 
you know, when I was at Solomon Brothers, people thought this is, these are obscene sums of money to pay 25 year olds. But the James Streets of the world are paying 25 year olds 10 times what, what Solomon Brothers were paying them, even adjusted for inflation. And if you hang and you're really successful for 10 or 15 years, you start to see 50, 60 million dollars. I mean, that's what they told him he was gonna make a year. So the, the sums are incredible. I mean, people used to make millions and at, you know, at the top end, maybe 10 million. And now you're talking about billionaires are being made in these places. I mean, and so it is something different happened. And he, and he saw that and it shaped him. It shaped how he thought about the world. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned already uh, and certainly go into great detail in the book is he's not a true believer in crypto. He's not a guy who, you know, most of the people who are reaching out to you to say, write a book about me and what I'm doing and how this is gonna change the world, were all in on this. It was their, their, you know, what they lived and they breathed. What got him to go into that business despite not being a so it, it is all in? It is interesting. It was the crypto people who were forever pitching me to come write about crypto never had a really good story to me about what crypto was for. And it kept changing. First, it was actually gonna replace dollars, but you could see pretty quickly that Bitcoin was not, as a means of exchange, was not up to the task of replacing the dollar. I mean, then it was gonna be the new gold. And then it was just an uncorrelated asset that, you know, but it, and it wasn't any of those things. Maybe one day it'll be the gold, I don't know. But Sam had none of that, that story. Um, Sam was, this might be all BS. Like, he always, he always cast everything in terms of probabilities said like 80% chance that this is all BS, 20% chance that it actually finds a use that's gonna be great. And the use would naturally be probably disintermediating things, like in theory, eliminate need for, the need for financial intermediaries. Uh, and there might be great value in that. But he was not selling that that hard. It was, what brings him into it is not that at all. What attracts him to crypto is what actually attracts, attracts most people to crypto. It's an excellent gambling. Tool. I mean, that it, it's, it's, it trades 24 seven. There's no barriers to entry. No one asks any questions and you can run off with your money and no one knows you have it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just like has all these properties that make it very appealing to people who want to speculate. And he was sitting in Jane Street in 2017 and, you know, trading conventional assets and watching everybody around him trade conventional assets, trying to get like a, uh, a tenth of a percent edge in markets. You know, if you could get an, if you get an arbitrage where you made a, a a whole percent, that was considered like a bonanza. If you could if you could buy Apple stock for hundred and sell it for for one hundred and one at the same time, it was like that was a miracle. And he's looking over his right shoulder, and this thing that had been kind of this weird hobbyist interest, crypto, goes from nothing to a trillion dollar market, and you can buy a Bitcoin in the United States for $1,000 and sell it for 1,200 at the same time in, in Japan. Sometimes the arms are like 50%. Like it's outrageous. It looked like it's just like free money to him. And the, idea, the simple idea was, I'm gonna be the Jane Street for crypto. That, that, that the, the high frequency traders had not, for a bunch of reasons, I think everybody was afraid of the legal risk, the reputational risk, that. And plus it had not been a big market. It, it had just become a big market. Sam realized there's a window, it's a moment that, that if I get there fast and I reproduce the Jane Street's trading systems, 
So it's all automated and we're trading 200, making 250,000 trades a day. We send our bots off just to buy things at one place and sell them at another place at different prices that will rake it in. So that was the basic idea. The problem was that he sort of neglected the whole infrastructure that, you, that Jane Street gave him. He just took it for granted. So he, he moves to Berkeley, California and hires 19 effective altruists, only one of whom had really serious you know, experience in the financial markets, a fellow Jane Streeter. Uh, everybody else had like less than no knowledge. Like they wouldn't know what a stock or a bond was. They'd never traded anything. They were all 21 and 22, 23 years old. But he used these bodies to try to create a high frequency trading firm for crypto. Yeah. And it was in the beginning a disaster. You know, it was a disaster in a way that told you what was maybe gonna happen later when he got to FTX. It was the, there was a great foreshadowing kind of what happened. The, the $4 million that was so, uh, yeah, that went the, unaccounted for and that he wasn't necessarily worried about going and finding it. It'll, it'll show up eventually. Well, he had, it was interesting. So he had these naives with him, people who just didn't know anything and who trusted him in the beginning and they thought they were all aligned because they weren't making money for themselves, they were making money to give it away. And the capital was all coming from other effective, rich effective altruists. So they had like a, $175 million of other people's money. Uh, money that in the minds of the people who were using it, these people in Sam's new firm, Alameda Research, could be going to like saving lives. Uh, so they're, they, it's sacred dollars to them. And pretty quickly, it becomes clear to them that Sam is so chaotically disorganized or possibly crooked that the money is at risk. They do very well for five or six weeks and then they do very badly for about a month. And at the back end of this month, money had been lost and not like lost in trades, lost like you lost your keys. Like they just didn't know where the money was. And 30% of the trades they made, there was no record of. And Sam had this new bot he wanted to release on the world that was gonna trade even faster that, that no one knew what was gonna happen when he released it on the, in the world. And he wanted to release it anyway. He was taking these risks that made them all beyond uncomfortable. And there was this split that half the people in the firm quit. And, but before they quit, they accused him basically of being a criminal. They couldn't tell. It, they, they actually, to this day, they don't agree on whether, even now, whether he was basically crooked or basically incredibly sloppy. But what happens, and this shapes the organization that he goes on to create, is that there's an argument about, in particular, $4 million of a cryptocurrency called Ripple. It's just gone. And $4 million means a lot to them. And Sam says, there's an 80% chance it'll just turn up. Let's just keep trading. Let's not worry about finding it. We'll, it will, we will find it or not. The people who left were so upset by his unwillingness to just reckon with this lost money, they, they flee. And, but 10 people stay. And right after they, the 10 who leave, leave they find the ripple and then the thing writes itself and they become very profitable. So the people who stay, including the most people who become the most important players in FTX, Gary Wong, Nishad Singh, Caroline Ellison, all go through this trial by fire where they may have, if they doubted Sam, they learn not to. That they learn, oh, Sam was right. That all those people who were, were skeptical of him were wrong. And it's the beginning of, uh, I mean, it's probably a case study for startups in that 
there is this thing that will happen around founders when things bounce their way. They become a little culty, a little, it becomes a little, they're cult-like figures. And they were already a cult. They were already, there was a cult-like environment. They shared a religion, right? The religion was effective altruism. They, you can't understand the story if you don't understand. They really believe that. Like, whatever you think of it, you have to withhold judgment, right? My description of it is probably not as seductive as the story they told about it in their minds. They cared a lot about this. So they have this, already the preconditions for a cult, shared religious belief. And then they have this figure who has sort of shown that the doubters were wrong. And that's the, it's in that environment from this firm that the crypto exchange FTX is created and is born. And, and throughout all of this, the creation of Alameda, uh, the creation of FTX, sort of traditional governance is never put in place. They're not, you know, <laughs> to say the least, right? So I keep saying, think, you know, people try to take my books and extract business lessons from them. And, and sometimes there are some <laughs> lessons. I'm never thinking of the lessons. I'm just thinking about the story. Like, I'm just telling a story and let other people. But I'm trying to figure out what's gonna happen with this. And it's sort of like a how not to for a Harvard Business School case study. It's also a bit of, um, here's why we do the th things as we do them, as opposed to just discard all previous management knowledge and theory to try to invent a company from scratch that's completely different from any company that ever existed. Uh, so Sam, what does he do? Uh, he builds a company, he thinks that he doesn't need a board of directors, so there's never a board of directors. He says there's some guy out there who's called a member of the board of directors because I need someone else to docu-sign the documents. So that, he's quite open about this. He's not hiding any of this. It's like arguing for this. No chief financial officer, as he says to me when I ask him, why is there no chief financial officer? He says, everybody tells me I need one. All the venture capitalists say, and I say, what do they do? And they say, the venture capitalists say, the CFO keeps track of the money. He says, what do you think I do? I keep track of the money. I don't need a CFO. So he has no CFO. No job, if he had his druthers, zero job titles. But he hated job titles because he thought people, they became uh, excuses for people not to do things rather than to do things. Um, not my job, as opposed to my job. And that people used them to inflict status wounds on the people below them. So no organization chart, because he didn't want people above and below. To me, this is like one of the, it's one of 50 little stories, but that core capture the full, not just the spirit of the enterprise, but the, the chaos created by this man. Um, he, he gets to an organization of 400 people and there's no organization chart. There's a lot of unhappiness. And a lot of the unhappiness is people, it's work drama. And it's, some of that work drama grows out of people not knowing where they are in the structure or being unhappy with where they think they are or seeing somebody is not knowing who reports to them or who they report to. It's that kind of chaos. Sam, to deal with the unhappiness, moves his own personal psychiatrist from the Bay Area to the Bahamas, where the business now is. And this is, this is about the time I meet him, this fall of 2021. George Lerner is a psychiatrist, great character. George Lerner gets to the Bahamas and finds like in a nanosecond, a hundred people want to be his patient because they, because they just they tear their hair out. I mean, they're working 20 hours a day and they're unhappy. And he realizes he can't treat them unless he understands how this business works and who, who's reporting to who. So in therapy, 
he teases out an organization chart. And, it, it, and it's a beautiful organization chart. Every person is listed on it. And he, but he keeps it secret from everyone because he knows that Sam would be furious if he, he knew it. But before, before George disappeared, after all, it all blew up, he handed me a, a thumb drive with the org chart and we put it on the inside of the I dust jacket. It was, and I felt like, I felt like it was um, like in a Tolstoy novel, you get the family tree. <laughs> it, it was that, or a Shakespeare play, you get the kings. It was that, if you wanted to, see, you, you kind of needed to pin it on the wall as you're reading it, just to see where everybody was. And he did actually figure out a lot about the organization. But the fact that the only reason an org chart exists of this pretty big company is the psychiatrist created out of therapy is a very Sam Bankman Freed fact. And that the whole organization is disorganization. And I think Sam had the view that people shouldn't need to be managed. And what that does, maybe in a really small company, that can, you could pull that off. Um, it, it does sometimes create brilliance. It does, mean, it does sometimes cause people to jump to problems to solve that they, not their problem. It creates a kind of looseness of structure where people will do great things. But it actually is somehow in violation of human nature too. That like the people, they need to, if they don't know their place, especially the people he had, these are technologists, half of them from China. The Chinese mind without an organization chart explodes. That they, they, this didn't know, it's like the most important thing in the organization is the organization chart. Uh, and it just, it created all these human problems. And one of the characteristics of Sam Bankman Freed is a kind of obliviousness to human problems. I mean, what, so the business lessons, I'm not sure what it is, except that you don't do this. Like all these things just don't do. Uh, well, tell me, tell me this. You, you you said that some people thought of him as chaotically disorganized, and others thought he was crooked. Yeah. Where do you come down on that balance between those two? I think he's not conventionally crooked. Uh, he's not like that. Um, he's got a a moral infrastructure that's unusual, which will elicit cackles from people who want to think of him as just a simple crook. Mm -hmm. uh, but He's got, a, he's got no principles. He's, instead, he's got probabilities. That he thinks, he thinks of things not in terms like, there's no black and white in Sam Beckman-Fried's world. It's all shades of gray. And so when he thinks about a decision about whether to do this or not do this, he's not thinking, oh, there's a bright red line here and you don't do that. He's thinking, what's the likely outcome from that? And he's aiming towards something that's quite good. He wants to save humanity from extinction. He actually is doing that. It's a bit like, you know, it's like, it's like an AI program. It's like an AI program that's been given an instruction, but not been told how to do it. And not given any guardrails about how to do it. So uh, I, I dial up my chat GPT-9, whatever, the, in the future. Some, some, some AI program that's as smart as Sam. And I say, get me a reservation at my favorite restaurant for dinner tomorrow night. That's all I tell it. It goes and finds that my favorite restaurant is fully booked tomorrow night. And it starts murdering people who have reservations to get me a table. That's Sam Beckman Freed. So uh, now it's, just, it's not amoral is what it is. The other side of him is he is genuinely, he learned pretty early in life and Jane Street sort of reinforces this, that where he excels is in messy environments. 
If it's too clean an environment, he gets beat. He does not want to play you in chess. He will get beat in chess. But if you say that everybody has to make their move, every, each move only, you're only allowed five seconds, and once every five minutes, you're gonna change the rules of the game, then Sam starts to win. Because everybody else melts down. So he needs to create these environments where that are these kind of semi-chaotic environments. Still helps to know to be smart about chess, but there's something else involved there too then. So he over and over again creates these kind of environments. And he did it with his own business too. And what this does is it, it creates the preconditions, the, the, the chaotic disorganization, the lack of organization, the lack of accounting, um, the lack of grown-ups creates the situation in which bright red lines can be crossed. You, again, can't understand the story unless you understand this. FTX definitely does not start as like some criminal enterprise. It's, it's such a dumb way to describe what they were doing. They didn't even, they didn't even think they wanted to create an exchange. They, they had the idea of creating an exchange and they thought they could sell it to Binance or one of the other crypto companies and get a license fee. They didn't think they had the ability to run an exchange. So they certainly didn't go, oh, we're gonna create an exchange to like take the customer's money and use it to trade in Alameda. That, that, it, it, and, and I don't even think it, it occurred to them that there was this massive free loan that was accumulating until quite late in the day. But it is also true that they did things that are clearly illegal. I mean, if you just took the story of my book, I leave it, I leave it to the reader to decide what to think about all this, to render their judgment and get a sense of how it happened. And it leaves you with a sympathy for it because you gotta see how it happened and how he's just different. But, but if you just take the facts of what they do, just the gross fact that of the $15 billion of customer deposits that were very obviously supposed to be held in cold wallets on the exchange, like 10 of them, or maybe more of the billion, are inside Alameda functioning as a free loan, and nobody knows. that. I mean, that fact alone is just so damning. So when you put the question that way, is he is it sloppy or is he a crook? The, the question, the way that you put it, the people who we worked with in the very beginning of Alameda Research put it, and there was a spectrum of answers. There was actually a person who was as cynical as a person could be about Sam Bankman-Fried, and there was actually a person who though he quit because he couldn't stand the way Sam ran things, actually was quite sympathetic to Sam and thought this person was wrong. And this, per this person was idiotically wrong. Um, I kind of came down closer to this person in that even though they had kind of agreed on the facts, everybody saw what had happened. It wasn't, they, the disagreement wasn't about the facts. And the disagreement in this the story I've written is not about the facts. It's about how you feel about the facts. Like how, how angry are you about this? Or outraged? Or how sad are you about this? And uh, I tilt towards the sadness thing. I, I, but I try to, this is the, if there is a, a trick to my story, a magic to the book, it's, it's sort of leaving it to the reader to figure out how they feel about this. And there's such a range. I've reproduced in the reading public this drama that occurred in Alameda Research with this spectrum that I have readers who are, who are just outraged beyond belief and thinks he should be lynched. And there are readers who are like, I mean, I have people say things to me that I have not thought, that it, this is neurodivergence. Here's, that's something I've heard. I've heard a lot of that. Like, 
you can't really blame him because it's how he is. Like the world should have kind of like constrained this person. <laughs> you know, it's not like, so there's these like, it, it, so it, I've heard that range of opinion. And I think that's the joy of the story is it generates that range of opinion. The best stories generate are become like Rorschach tests for the, the readership that yeah. they are, it's the reader gets to sort of supply something to it. Yeah. In, in the minute or so we have left, I wanted to ask you, you confided in me a while back that you become friendly with a number of your subjects. Yep. Uh, obviously, Brad Katsuyama is, All the, of them. is the start, starting point of this, exactly. Billy Bean and all I've and never on. had one of them leave my life. They're, you know, if I died tomorrow, I think most of them would be at my funeral. So this is one who might not be at your funeral is Sam Bankman-Fried and, and, and may not be able to go hiking with you in Burton, the Berkeley Hills. Is he somebody who you're going to stay in touch with? He won't be at my funeral because he'll be in jail. That's what I mean. Right, right. Yes. Uh, I <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. Anyway, <laughs> but, you know, but you know what else? I, this is the other difference. He wouldn't be at my funeral because he wouldn't see the, he'd, he'd make the expected value calculation. He'd say, well, he, Michael wouldn't care. He's dead, right? He, that, 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 it's not worth the, the, the emotional gesture would not resonate with him in any way. So he, he won't be, he wouldn't be at my funeral in any case. Uh, but I will stay in touch with him for sure. Sure. I, I, I've been, it's been a riveting experience getting to know him. And uh, I, fi I find him, I still find him endlessly interesting. Um, and I'm always looking for people who are kind of like generating story as they move through life. And I had a glimpse of, of maybe another story. When the book came out, it came out the day the trial started. Uh, but two days before it came out, 60 Minutes ran a big piece about it. And I got a note from a person who knew a person who knew a person letting me know that Sam Bankman-Fried had watched the 60 Minutes episode in jail with his cellmates, the former president of Honduras and the former attorney general of Mexico and their prison guards. And that afterwards, all the prison guards wanted Sam to give him crypto trading advice. And I just thought, there may be something happening here that I need to pay attention to. <laughs> <laughs> because because there's a good prison story. If Sam Bagafried ends up being uh, the necromancer inside of the magician inside the jail, I want to be there to see that. Uh, so I, I, we may stay in touch for literary reasons. Uh, but I'm fond of him. I, you know, I, 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 it's funny. I just I don't I, as you as is probably true when Brad Katsuyama was asking me for my advice. I tend to conflate my fondness for the person for my excitement about the character. That it's just the character's so much fun just to watch him move through space. He teaches me so much about the world, sometimes inadvertently, that I, I don't want to lose that. I mean, I think he's going to continue to do that. I, th I don't think it's going to stop just because he's in jail. Well, Michael Lewis, thank you so much for spending time thank with me. You, it's Peter. always such a great pleasure to speak with you. Totally fun. <laughs> <laughs>